Coming up this week on the Thomas Jefferson Hour, we talk about Thanksgiving. We talk about the history of Thanksgiving. Uh, We talk about uh, some of the things that you and I are both thankful for. And the irony of the first Thanksgiving when Native Americans and the pilgrims broke bread together. It's a myth. It's a very agreeable myth. But we look at the background of cultural genocide which followed. We also both take time to recognize how much we appreciate the listeners of this program, how important the, this program has become to the both of us, and, and the future of it. And there's a little debate about whether technology can solve our most pressing problems. Uh, well, it, it helped you keep your hands warm during the blizzard. We'll <laughs> just say that. Please join us for all that and more on this week's Thomas Jefferson Hour. Good day, citizens, and welcome to this week's edition of What Would Jefferson Do? Our weekly opportunity to discuss American events with President Thomas Jefferson, who is seated across from me now, and good to see you as always, Mr. Jefferson. Good day to you, citizen. Uh, Mr. Jefferson, the month is November, and as you probably know, Americans celebrate a holiday called Thanksgiving, and it was first proclaimed by George Washington, I believe, in 1789, and then uh, also uh, Mr. Adams had a Thanksgiving proclamation, and so did Mr. Madison, but missing from that list, sir, is is you. You decided not to declare Thanksgiving. Uh, why was that? I was invited to declare, as my two predecessors had done, the National Day of Thanksgiving. I thought about it. We certainly have a great deal to be thankful for, you know, separated by 2,000 miles, 3,000 really, from the havoc of the old world, uh, new lands, uh, forests that have never been tapped, rivers that have never been diverted, soil that's never been plowed. We're the most blessed people in human history, and we have an enormous amount to be thankful for, and I particularly am thankful for my life at Monticello. I was able to build what you would call it my dream home, and I was able to live on a mountain in in a very healthy climate, away from the miasma of the lower Chesapeake with all of its malarial diseases and so on. Uh, I was fortunate to live through one of the most important moments in human history, the Declaration of American Independence in 1776. And more than that, I was selected to write the key document that, as I understand it, has gone on to be one of the most important and famous documents in history. So, so much there is to, to be thankful for. But the government of the United States in my view, does not need to involve itself in this sort of thing. That if people want to have a harvest festival in Massachusetts or Virginia or Maryland, they're certainly entitled to do so. I don't know that government needs to set aside a day on the calendar. That feels a little like appropriating a a power that was never intended by the men who wrote the Constitution. The Constitution doesn't say that the president shall have the discretion to name holidays and to designate moments in the calendar when people should step back and reflect. 
I, I think those are private matters, that this really is a question of the wall of separation between church and state. And so I don't want to sound ungenerous, but I don't think that that is a presidential power. Forgive me, Mr. Jefferson, that seems a bit stiff, you know, the will of the people and what they want and the government doing what they want. Was was it a case of you just felt that the federal government should not do this, but it was okay if the states decided to do it on their own? Well, that's partly true. Even the federal government could do it if if if, if both houses of Congress passed a law designating such and such a day to be a national day of Thanksgiving. I, I might raise an eyebrow over that, but I wouldn't uh, denounce it or veto it. If Congress created Thanksgiving, I would acquiesce, but I don't think the president should be inventing this sort of thing himself. So yes, I think it could be a national holiday if Congress passed it. I think that states should do whatever they wish, but on the whole, I, I think government should deliver the mail. The government should muster troops. The government should coin money. The government should raise taxes. The government should not engage itself in coordinating the conscience of the people. I'm sorry, Mr. Jefferson, but that that sort of puts a Dickens uh, phrase to mind of a Scrooge. Uh, I don't mean that with any disrespect, but uh, I I thank you very much, and uh, I now understand your position much better, sir. Well, thank you. I don't want to sound as if I don't understand the abundance and the gratitude that we Americans feel to live in this country, to live under our Constitution, to have a Bill of Rights, to be an ingenious and well-educated and literate people. All those things matter. And, you know, every year at Monticello, we had harvest festivals privately. That, I think, is my preferred approach. Good day to you, Mr. Jefferson, and thank you very much. You are most welcome, sir. Good day, citizens, and welcome to the Thomas Jefferson Hour, and a happy Thanksgiving to all of you. I'm your host, David Swenson, joined by the creator of the Jefferson Hour, Mr. Clay Jenkinson. And Clay, you suggested that perhaps it was time we we did a show devoted to Thanksgiving and, and wish all of our listeners a happy holiday. Absolutely. Thanksgiving is my favorite holiday of all the holidays of the year. I should say, for historical purposes, the Jefferson did not observe Thanksgiving. He was encouraged to declare a national day of Thanksgiving during his presidency. He declined. He did not think that the national government of the United States had the authority to coordinate religious or other sacred festivals, that this was a private matter. And so that makes him seem a little scroogey, as you know from our Christmas programs too. But he, uh, but he declined. It wasn't until Abraham Lincoln, uh, during the Civil War, that our Thanksgiving holiday was born, even though it has roots back, of course, to uh, the pilgrims in Massachusetts. George Washington issued the first Thanksgiving proclamation in 1789. John Adams and James Madison also designated Days of Thanks, but Mr. Jefferson's name is not there. 
so this makes Jefferson look a little scroogey. Uh, he didn't observe Christmas, but it also points to Jefferson's principle of separation of church and state. He believed that the government of the United States should do things that governments do, and that the government of the United States should not do those things which are best left to the private sphere. And as time went on, Thanksgiving was celebrated, but it wasn't, as you say, until 1863 that Abraham Lincoln made it a, a, a national holiday. Is that, a, is that correct? That is correct. And, you know, and thank goodness he did, because what other holiday in the whole panoply of our holidays invites us to step back and to celebrate the abundance of America? America stands for abundance. And we sometimes forget that. I don't remember a Thanksgiving in my life, David, when at some point one of us at my table didn't sort of push back from the table and say, what an amazing country this is with its, with its abundance, that this is what we're celebrating. It's a harvest festival. Right. And you'd go around the table and each would declare things that they were thankful for. It's kind of a ritual. But you know, I, I did find Lincoln's proclamation and he asked all Americans to look to God to, quote, commend his tender care, all those who have become widows, orphans, mourners, or sufferers in the lamentable civil strife, and to, quote, heal the wounds of the nation. Almost as a counterweight to the tragedy that was unfolding in 1863, the end of the war was not in sight. And so Lincoln says, yes, we can't, we can't not acknowledge that. That's the crisis we're in. But maybe it would help if we also brought God's bounty and a sense that America has a special place in the world to bear on this tragedy too. It, it, it's interesting to me as well that it was always the fourth or final Thursday in November until 1939 when then President Franklin Roosevelt moved the holiday up a week, and he did it, uh, it is said, in an attempt to spur retail sales during the Great Depression. Roosevelt's plan known, was known derisively as Franksgiving, not Thanksgiving. You know, so he's, in a sense, the father of Black Friday, that, you know, the commerce was in deep, deep disarray during uh, the Great Depression, and I did not know that. It's an amazing factoid. But one of the things that I want to say, and I know you will agree with me, David, is that what makes Thanksgiving so very special is that it is the least commercialized of our holidays. And I've been watching with chagrin as the commercialization of Thanksgiving has come to us. And so not only is there Black Friday, which has become a national and even international ritual now, you know, people getting up at 4 a.m., going to stand in line at a Best Buy or a Macy's uh, to uh, get to be to be the first when the doors were open to get to certain types of bargains. And now in some cases on Thursday evening, there is pre-commerce that after the Thanksgiving dinner at 2 to 4 p.m., you rest a little, then you suit up and go out into the community to make purchases. The commercialization of even Thanksgiving is uh, horrifying to me, and I wish that we would reverse that trend. And it, it, it's not a, a uniquely American holiday, as you well know. I mean, there are ancient origins. Uh, it goes back to harvest festivals and 
an, an origin during pagan times. Indeed, it does. And, and there are harvest festivals still all over the world because when the harvest comes in, you suddenly have great abundance. You know, you might be in a condition of starvation by February, but in October or November, when the harvest comes in, you have the pumpkins and you have the squashes and you have the corn and so on. And so that's the time to use a little of it to gather in your friends, the people who worked on the farm, to celebrate the completion of the harvest and, and the sheer abundance that it brought. It may not play out across the whole year, but it's important to acknowledge, even in a sacred way, you know, a sacrament is not necessarily a religious thing. A sacrament is stepping back to bring a kind of formal attention to one of the deep and the most important rituals of life. And so now that the harvest is over, we have this, this banquet, this festival to say, this is what we do. Let us not forget that this bounty comes from the earth, or if, if, if it's your way of looking at it, comes from God. That's, that's a sacrament, and it doesn't have to be a Christian or Muslim or Jewish sacrament. It's a sacrament of the blessing of life. In, in researching the origins, we go back to the Romans, and help me with the pronunciation, but I believe it was a holiday called Cerulea, um, which was uh, honoring the goddess of the harvest. So we get the word cereal from that goddess. Yeah, so again, uh, I've said this many times on the Jefferson Hour because it's one of the central beliefs of my life that that the miracle is that you put one seed in the ground and you get this abundance. You get a hundred seeds in return. You know, think of planting just a little corn kernel, and then suddenly you get this seven foot high green stalk with two beautiful ears of corn in it, and each of those ears has 200 or more kernels. If you then take all of those kernels and plant them next year, suddenly you have just unbelievable abundance. And that's for Jefferson and the, the school of economics known as the physiocrats. This is the, this is the source of all wealth. You put one grain of wheat in the ground and you get a hundred. You, you put, one seed of an apple and you into the ground when the apple tree flourishes you get 500 apples all of which are filled with seeds and so if you just show husbandry and stewardship you are going to always be fine if you stay close to the soil for me of course as you know <laughs> it this is the miracle of heirloom tomatoes you you plant a a seed that's the size of a pinhead and end up with a seven-foot plant loaded with, with fruit. And, you know, there, there is something uh, in that, a, a connection. Now, you often encourage listeners, you know, grow anything, even if it's a, a pot of uh, cherry tomatoes on your patio. Uh, there is some human connection to that whole process that, uh, well, it's very centering and, and, and satisfying. You do this, and you take it a step farther, and I think it's the right step farther. You often go into that tomato and cull the seeds. I do. In other words, you don't just you don't just buy another packet of seeds next year. 
you take the seeds from the tomato itself. And that's how it was supposed to be. And what offends me about modern industrial agriculture is what are known as terminator seeds, seeds that have been genetically manipulated so they can only grow one crop. And the seeds, the, the, the corn that comes from that or the wheat that comes from that or the tomato that comes from that has sterile seeds in it. This is, this is known as terminator seeds. And it's done out of, purely out of capitalism so that you can't keep part of your own corn harvest and grow those kernels next year. You have to buy new ones from the from the seed store. This is a this is a kind of obscenity. It seems to me in the nature of agriculture that that de it defies the very central idea of agriculture. Yeah, you know, I I don't know. You know, as a as a beginning tomato grower, I I didn't really even know that you could do that. That you could save seeds. And of course, I, the Terminator seeds. I'm not I'm not real well versed in that, but uh, uh, seeds that are hybrids, you, you you can save them and grow them again, but you have no idea what you're going to get the next year. So that's kind of a, a fringe thing that we, a road we probably don't need to go down. But what you're doing, you know, growing, you have a small garden, I know. You take very good care of it. You grow a few things. You enjoy that abundance for many weeks through the winter months and and you save seeds and use those seeds the following year that's the very nature of the thing and, and here's what's so important about it. you're not dependent upon that if if your garden failed you would be fine you'd be sad but but it wouldn't affect your nutritional base that's what we can do in our time in other words jefferson wanted all of us to be farmers 97%, you know, the, those who labor in the earth are the chosen people of God. We're not going to be that. You know, you, you're a, a, a studio engineer and a musician and, a, and, and, and work on Native American uh, projects. Somebody else is an insurance adjuster. Someone's a, a former math teacher. We're not going to subsist on what we produce in our gardens, although we might, but by participating in it to a certain level, giving some of your discretionary time to that, you are reinvigorating yourself and reconnecting with the most sacred traditions in the history of humanity. And it's an incredible reward to do that. We need to take a short break. We'll be back in just a moment to talk more about Thanksgiving. You're listening to The Thomas Jefferson Hour. Thank you. 
Welcome back to the Thomas Jefferson Hour. This week, our Thanksgiving show. I'm your host, David Swenson, joined by the creator of the Thomas Jefferson Hour, Mr. Clay Jenkinson. And when we took our break, um, you were going on about the rewards of of gardening in, in any form, and I was vigorously nodding my head at your statement, sir. Yes, so I was in England recently, and I was down in Somerset uh, at a little village called Bruton pursuing a John Steinbeck project. He was there with his third wife, Elaine, for seven months in 1959, working on a translation of an Arthurian masterpiece called The Mort d'Arthur, one of the first books ever published in the English language. I stayed on this little estate called Discove Cottage, where they lived, and there were some apples there that had just been, just fallen off the tree. And so I brought back a couple of them, and I'm going to pull the seeds out of them and try to grow them here in western North Dakota beginning next spring. And I don't really know how to do that, but you know how to, I know how to find out. Our dear friend Pat Brodowski, the former head gardener at Monticello, will be, she will jump into action if I text her and say, how do I preserve these apple seeds and make sure that they have a chance to grow uh, in the 2023 growing season? That's great. That's great. Good luck with that. Um, so we, we, we've talked a bit about um, the history of Thanksgiving. We haven't really mentioned the first Thanksgiving. And I, I, honestly, I don't know how much of it is, is accurate and how much of it is, is just a myth. But the Puritans, the pilgrims, when they first came over, can you shed any light on that? Well, I'm, I'm doing a, an online course starting Thanksgiving week on the myth of America, myth. And I want to say myth is not necessarily false. Myth is more interesting than that. Myth means a story that may or may not be factually true, that embodies some important truth about a people or a person or a place. And so myth has a truthness that isn't required to pass factual scrutiny. So, I mean, an, an obvious myth is Athena being born out of the head of Zeus. Um, these are gods and goddesses of the Greek world. The idea of this is that Athena doesn't have a mother. She's, she's a purely patriarchal female goddess in the Greek pantheon. This didn't actually happen. Even the Greeks didn't think that it actually happened, but they knew that the principle that they were trying to get at of a patriarchal goddess was embodied in this story. It reminds us of the strangeness of things. And so the myth structure then is meant to explore that in an imaginative way. But if you think this is going to pass muster in a scientific laboratory under a spectroscope, it isn't. But that doesn't make it any less true. So 1621, Plymouth, is, is noted by many historians as, quote, the first Thanksgiving. Do you, do you, do you agree with that? Yes, of course. The, the, the pilgrims celebrated the harvest, because, going back to what we said in the first segment of this program. The harvest festivals are almost inevitable. Come share the abundance. But all the rest of it is probably not actually so. So what does it tell us? The, the story says, well, Squanto and other Native Americans contributed to the feast, and we sat down and broke bread together. And Squanto taught the English people how to grow corn by by using fish as a, as a fertilizer and so on. What's the, what's the takeaway from these stories, David? 
you know, we're all going to get along. Natives were welcoming us. The two cultures can coexist. They had things to teach us, and, and we brought them into our Harvest Festival. There may be some kernel of truth in this story, but it's been used to make the incredibly tragic history of white Native relations in North America seem benign. And it hasn't been benign. It's been cultural genocide. It's been dispossession. It's been war after war, usually trumped up on false premises. So to, to have this myth and say, well, and, the, and the, this article I was reading about says in, in all these schools in the country, you know, the people take colored paper and paste and they make headdresses and, and, they, and they carry little bows and arrows and, and they reenact this moment where natives and white people sat down in harmony at the end of the harvest season. And even if there's a historical factoid of truth in this, it presents a wholly false picture of the history of white and Indian relations in the United States. And so it's important that we acknowledge that. And we should probably be a little less naive about these annual Thanksgiving events that are staged in almost every school in America. I don't know how much of that still goes on, but I know it went on when you and I were of that age. What you're saying sort of flies in the face of uh, what they call the woke culture, doesn't it? <laughs> I knew you were going to bring that up, but to be awakened to the truth that, you know, I was, I've been thinking about my own state of North Dakota. Before 1700, it was entirely... Uh, owned and occupied by Native peoples. Mandan, Hidatsa, Arikara, Ojibwe, Assiniboian, Lakota, Dakota. White people came. Lewis and Clark said, we don't want to buy a single acre of land. We're just sort of passing through. But that was 1804. By 1904, 97% of the land of North Dakota had been taken from the Native peoples and deeded out to white people. And the native peoples were on reservations, reserved lands that were often the worst lands in the state. Um, and even then, their reservations were absorbed in part through the Dawes Act so that there's a checkerboarding problem and, and natives really only control about 35 or 45% of the lands that appear to be Indian reservations. So we went from 1804 when natives owned all of North Dakota to 1904 when they owned almost none of North Dakota. And there are many, many conservative political figures in North Dakota that would like to dissolve the reservations now and get it over with once and for all. So how do you look at that story, uh, which is a story of appropriation, dispossession, war, trickery, bribery, arbitrary government executive orders, congressional legislation in which natives were not involved whatsoever, how do you look at that story and then say, now, let's, let's enjoy the Thanksgiving myth of, of the natives of, of, of Massachusetts sitting down with the, the pilgrims and, and breaking bread together? It's absurd. You know, I think about all the efforts right now um, that are going on with the 1619 Project and um, the effort of reparation for um, people who are descendants of enslaved people. Lost in all that is what happened to Native Americans. You know, we're kind of drifting away from this nice Thanksgiving show, but 
but it's important. Um, at, at some time, there's going to be a reckoning in America for that, don't you think? One can hope. It hasn't come yet. You know, I will believe this when significant portions of the Black Hills are returned to the Lakota and the Cheyenne. Most of the Black Hills are publicly owned. In other words, they're, they're public lands, they're national forest, national monument, national park, um, national wildlife refuge. And so the owners are the American people. It's not Bill Smith and, 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 and Judy Novotny. So we could easily deed back significant portions of the Black Hills to the Lakota and the Cheyenne, and no one's ox would be gored because these are public lands. So we should do this. And when we do this, I will believe that we want to do justice. But what what has happened, as you well know, this was a famous federal court case in the 1970s in Minneapolis, Minnesota, and the Lakota won. The, the, the U.S. judge affirmed later by the Supreme Court, said the Lakota are the real owners of the Black Hills and that white people must compensate them in an enormous um, settlement. I can't remember what it was, but it was like $70 million at the time. And it's been accruing interest ever since, compounding. The Lakota rejected it and said, no, there's no amount. You could make it 10 times that, make it 100 times that. There's no amount of money that we're going to take for the Black Hills. We want the Black Hills. And so this is an impasse. But meanwhile, you know, it's like one of those clocks in Times Square about the national debt. The, the interest in the, on this is just growing exponentially. And so at some point, maybe the Lakota will say, well, $100 billion, you know, it's, it doesn't solve the problem, but we can buy a lot of land around the Black Hills with that. But that, that is an important act of enormous cultural integrity for the Lakota to reject essentially an infinite check. Yeah, and meanwhile, they're quietly buying it back. You know, back in 2004, I was lucky enough to get involved with a project called The People and the Land Are One. It was done for um, the Indian Land Tenure Foundation and United Tribes Technical College. It was essentially a, an educational program directed at Native youth, middle school, high school, to teach them about something, that a word I'd never heard, fractionization, which is really, you know, the checkerboarding ownership of of Indian lands it goes back to the Dawes Act of 1887, where um, reservation lands were divvied up amongst tribal members. The, the, the law was structured as such a, at an owner's death, it would be equally divided amongst his heirs. Well, Native people didn't have that sort of a uh, concept of land ownership or wills or law. So you ended up with land that was, you know, an acre of land could have dozens of owners, and it sort of made it useless to try to do anything with it. But in researching for that, I remember at the time it was like there was 1% of the U.S. population was Native American, but they controlled 40% of the nation's coal reserves. They controlled oil, copper, zinc reserves, thousands of acres of timber, farm, and ranch land, and... 20% of the nation's fresh water. So they have this huge resource, and their attempt was to try to regain control of it. And talking about the Black Hills, I remember going to Pine Ridge and doing a series of interviews, and one that will always stay with me was a uh, woman named Fern Bordeaux, uh, who was at that time with the Tribal Land Enterprise. 
and they were actively buying back pieces of the Black Hills. It was a period of drought, and ranchers would fail, and they would step in and buy the land. I remember her talking about this and, and um, looking at me and, and saying, you know, what we're doing is looking out for our future generations so they have a land base. And then she said, even if we have to buy it back, that's what we'll do, and that's what they're doing. So the only thing that I would add to that great story, it's a wonderful and moving story, you know, and I think many, many Native Americans believe that they will outlast American civilization, a white American civilization. But, but several states have attempted to pass laws to prevent Natives from buying back their lands. Think of that. I didn't know that. Yeah. I did not know that. I mean, in legislatures say, oh, my God, we can't let this happen. What if they bought back the Black Hills? What if they bought back mountain places in Oregon and Washington? And so it hasn't happened yet, but state legislatures often debate whether they can prevent Natives from buying back their ancestral lands when they become available on the market. Makes you shudder. Well, after all that darkness, <laughs> um, but it's historically significant. It gives perspective on Thanksgiving. Um, you came up with a bit of a list of of things you were thankful for, and you know we, we all remember, don't you, being a being a kid and and uh, the Thanksgiving dinner, and one of the grandparents would say, "Well, now let's let's all tell us each other what we're thankful for." Uh, that must this year. Yeah, you must have you must remember situations like that. I do. Uh, I certainly do. My grandmother was um, was very big on this on this ritual, and it's a little embarrassing um, because you're sitting there thinking, "Oh, what's the right thing to say?" or "What can I? What do I really?" You know, you haven't really thought about it. So that's why we do it, of course. And so, yes, I, I've seen that work, and I've seen that not work in my own family. Yeah, of course, the fail-safe answer is, "Well, I, I'm thankful for family." For all of you. So I made a list of these things. We don't have time to go through all of them. I'm going to just quickly mention a couple of them. First of all, Thanksgiving. I love it. And if there were only one holiday, that would be it. Friendship. What's called the Republic of Letters. And it's much easier today because of the internet and social media and texting and email and so on to maintain friendships over geographic space. But friendship kind of bleeds into the idea of the Republic of Letters. In Jefferson's time, the idea that there was a there was an informal club of like-minded, reformist, progressive people around the world that would correspond with each other and share the results of their scientific experiments and uh, encourage each other to write articles for the, each nation's encyclopedia and so on. And so, of course, there's David Nicandri, our, our friend out in uh, Washington State, and there's Joseph Ellis, our friend out in the other end of the country, uh, in Vermont, um, not to mention Lindsay Chervinsky, the young Turk of the Thomas Jefferson Hour. So friendship, and, and, and of course, friendship with you, a friendship that has now lasted for a quarter of a century. Um, I can't believe that I walked into your studio and said, would you like to record a few episodes of the Jefferson Hour until such time as we find a host? And here you are, the semi-permanent <laughs> guest host. Yes, and... I have to say that I am very thankful for that moniker. We get occasional emails with people, why don't you just make them the host? Um, I, if you took that title away from me, I would be heartbroken. But I do remember uh, 
very well when you came in, and I was awfully nervous about it because, you know, your reputation as uh, this great historian preceded you. And um, uh, I, I remember that first show. I, I, I had some knowledge of Jefferson, but I did a bunch of research um, uh, on him, and we ended up talking about Jefferson and his gadgets. So, yeah, I got to say, I am thankful to be this semi-permanent guest host. So that's another one, a big one. Uh, here are a couple of more. Modern technology. The other day I was in Oxford, England. So I'm visiting my daughter in Oxford, England. It's about 6,000 miles, 5,000-some miles from Bismarck, North Dakota. I got up that morning and took a coach to Heathrow Airport. I got on an airplane and flew to Dallas. I went through very complex and annoying passport control and customs. I repurposed my baggage for Bismarck, went back through security, got onto a plane, and got to Bismarck, North Dakota by 9.15 p.m. I started the day in England. I ended the day in my bed in North Dakota. I've done that from Rome. I've done that from Paris. I've done that from Toulouse. I've done that from Berlin. Jefferson took two months to get from Boston to Paris, and by then, the battery, the, the weariness, the, the wear and tear, the sheer frustration and the cost. You know, we live in this time. The vaccine, you know, the pandemic. I just saw a, a, a BBC series. Uh, well, actually, it was, a, it was a Netflix series on um, Boris Johnson and the pandemic. The pandemic rocked the world. More than a million people died in the United States. We had these open pit graves, and the hospitals were overwhelmed, and we all thought, what's going to happen? This is this is like the Black Plague. Within 18 months, we got a vaccine, and now this, this thing is still out there, but it's been reduced to kind of a bad flu. Uh, my snowblower broke down yesterday, so I borrowed my neighbor's <laughs> this blizzard in North Dakota. He, he had to give me an orientation training on it because if you can believe it David it has heated handles it's it has heated handles so that your hands don't get cold while you're blowing tons of snow uh, off the sidewalks in your yard our technologies are miraculous and we should never ever ever forget that yes miraculous and perhaps a bit dangerous at times of course i'm glad your hands were warm on the snowblower <laughs> we need to take a short break when when we come back um I, we have time i'd like to go through a bit more of your list and, and just hear your comments if that would be all right sir of, of course we'll be back in just a moment you're listening to the thomas jefferson hour
Welcome back to the special Thanksgiving edition of the Thomas Jefferson Hour. I'm out of character today, and David Swenson, the semi-permanent guest host, is very much in character across town. Uh, another miracle of technology. We've been talking about Jefferson and Thanksgiving, the history of Thanksgiving, and we spent a fair amount of time talking about Native Americans and and the myth of the first Thanksgiving and how that really obscures the the sad and even tragic history of white Native relations in the United States. And now we're turning to those more personal things that we are thankful for. And I, be, I was talking about technology and the snowblower that I used yesterday that had electric warm uh, handlebars so that you you know you wouldn't you wouldn't be dis in any discomfort as you blew your snow and it just strikes me um, of how complacent we are and how much we take this for granted last year my uh, water heater broke um, and I ordered a new water heater and but the guy who came said well if every morning if you come down and you and you take a long match you can relight the pilot and at least it will work every day if you do that until such time as we can you know put in the new water heater so i did this every morning i got up walked down into the basement lit a match started the fire waited 20 minutes and took a shower and by the third day i was like i can't live like this i can't live like this i this is not this is not life i i can't have to to start the fire in my water heater our our ancestors david were out digging pit coal out of the sides of bluffs in the blizzards and hauling it back and then chopping it up and feeding it day after day and night after night into their their furnace systems and when my water heater goes out i'm debilitated so our our technologies are absolutely unbelievable and 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 i'll say this i know this will get um some some pushback of course global climate change is one of the most existential questions of our time threats and we're in real trouble but i believe there will be a techno fix i believe the earth is forgiving that the earth wants to bounce back i believe that technology the the, the sheer ingenuity of human technology will ameliorate this to a considerable degree and we will find that when we look at this in the rearview mirror that technology played a very very significant role in overcoming this carbon problem. Boy, I, I wish I could share your optimism. Uh, I do not. Um, uh, to some extent, I do, and the technology could really help us, you know, but more in the sense of uh, developing better power sources for all this technology that you just spoke about. But I, I really don't think the Earth gives a hoot as to whether or not man exists. That's certainly true, but the Earth is a self-correcting organism i believe and if we would just get our boot off its neck i think it would recover well that that may be but we're talking centuries as long as the antelope survives and the buffalo survives and the native americans survive when we're gone okay by me let's lead that into another one that you had on your list being thankful for national parks monuments and public lands i need to say at this point thanks to theodore roosevelt we were going to have some public lands and national parks if he had never been born. But he's the one who came and really turned up the heat on this thing. He doubled the number of national parks from five to 10. He added 150 million acres of national forest by executive order. He created the first 18 national monuments by executive order. He invented the National Wildlife Refuge System. 
In short, he'd set aside 230 million acres of public lands, Muir Woods, Devil's Tower, the Grand Canyon. I mean, this is a stupendous achievement. No other person in our history has done this. You can say a lot of negative things about Theodore Roosevelt. This is not one of them. And we are so blessed. You know, Ken Burns had a documentary film in which I played a small part called National Parks, America's Best Idea. Well, it's not our best idea, but it's right up there. And so we're fortunate. When I travel in England and in France and in Italy and so on, there isn't public access to great lands. Or if there is, it's very minor. In this Our Happy Republic, we have enormous access to public lands. I can get in my car, and within two hours, I can be in the heart of the Little Missouri Wilderness in western North Dakota, or Theodore Roosevelt National Park, or uh, the Little Missouri National Grasslands. If I go to South Dakota, I can be at Custer State Park, maybe the greatest state park in the country. We are so blessed to have public lands. I know you feel this in equal measure. I do, and uh, uh, I am I am equally grateful for that. I, I don't know for sure. Uh, I, I've kind of thought that, uh, you know, this was unique to America, but, you know, doing research there, there, in England, there are a lot of preserved places uh, and public lands, and so we're, we're not the only ones, but we certainly have an abundance. We do, and, and those lands in other countries are important, uh, but they're minor, uh, and, and they're, very, they're very much constrained. Thank goodness they exist, but we're the nation that really created this phenomenon, and the rest of the world has envied it and, in many respects, followed it. And so, God bless America on that subject. We all, I'm sure, you know, this might be another uh, a cheap one to go after to be thankful for, but it's 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 valid in that as much as we struggle with our nation, um, as much division as there is. And, and so many wrongs that need to be righted. At the same time, I, I know we're very grateful, both of us, to be American citizens and to enjoy the privileges that American citizens have in spite of our shortcomings. And, you know, that's part of being an American is that we can afford to recognize our shortcomings. Let me take it back to our man, Mr. Jefferson. He said the good sense of the American people is our guarantee of the pursuit of happiness, that the people are not always well-informed, the people are not civic experts, the people aren't necessarily engaged in a deep way in, in self-government, but their basic good sense will always protect us. And I believe that the election of 2022 is an expression of the basic good sense of the American people. I'm surprised, frankly. I think everyone is. We got to a precipice in 2020 where it looked as if the republic might actually crack up and, and break apart. And in the election of 2022, we have pulled back and the most extremist election deniers and, and conspiracy theorists have largely been repudiated. The good sense of the American people, I, look at this, in 2016, the Democrat, Hillary Clinton, lost the election, but she had 3 million more votes than her opponent. In 2018, 40 seats were lost to uh, the Republican Party in Congress. In 2020, Joe Biden won by 7 million votes in the popular vote and narrowly in the Electoral College. And in 2022, there was a repudiation of the kind of crazy madness 
at one end of the conspiracy theory edge of the American culture. The American people edged up to the abyss and flirted with it and kind of wallowed around in it for a while. But now I think they have begun to pull back and we are more likely to survive as a republic today than we were a week ago. And I give enormous credit to the American people for being able to discern what a normal country is like and what an abnormal country looks like. Well, for me, it's more proof of my belief, which is there are extremists on both the left and the right. Of course. But the majority of Americans are somewhere in the middle, be they Republican, be they Democrat, be they independent. But, but what's Jefferson's uh, line about neither picks my pocket nor breaks, or breaks my, my leg? leg yeah. yeah, you know, I mean, there, there can be there can be differences of political opinion, but uh, it, it's 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 the news uh, coverage that gravitates towards the extremes on the left and the right because it makes for a better story and more entertaining one. But I do believe the majority of American citizens are somewhere in the middle. Oh, I do too. I think the broad middle runs to nearly the goal line on both sides. I'd say to the 20-yard line on each side of the field. There are more conservative and less conservative, more progressive and less progressive. I'm all over the map in that broad middle ground of the of the playing field, but I reject uh, both extremes. I particularly reject the extremes that, that fudge the truth. And so if you're Alex Jones... Uh, the the famous conspiracy theorist, billionaire, podcaster, and you can say that Sandy Hook in Connecticut and the Parkland shootings were false flag operations done by the CIA or something else so that, that we can lock up the guns of America. You're evil. It's that it's that simple. You're evil. The, the, the right of the Republican Party, and I'm not talking about the party per se, but the far right of the party, nearly hijacked the party and may still and it has it has embraced the craziest conspiracy theories that Mrs. Clinton was running a child trafficking system in a pizza house in Washington, D.C., that sort of thing. That's nuts, and that's evil. Let's fight a fair fight. The Democrats spend too much. The Republicans deregulate too much, whatever it is. Let's fight a fair fight using some sort of agreed-upon factual base but if you're going to make stuff up like that, you know, he was recently, Alex Jones was recently assessed over a, a billion dollars for these evil lies. He probably has it. He's probably made billions telling those lies. We're talking about something that's paranoid and openly evil here. And I think the American people have said, uh-uh, not going there. You know, the, the Parkland shooting was a shooting. Sandy Hook was a shooting. That's what they are. These are not CIA operations. So there may have been something in that phrase coined uh, years ago about the silent majority. Yes, Nixon used it in 1969, and people laughed at the time. But I like that phrase. I think there is a silent majority. I think that silent majority got loud and elected Donald Trump. But I think the silent, a broader silent majority has now said, enough already. Let's fight a fair fight about tax policy. Let's fight a fair fight about immigration. Let's fight a fair fight about Ukraine. Let's let's not just make stuff up 
and call that politics. So, you know, you're talking about progressives and conservatives. I don't think I've ever asked you this before, but how would you categorize Jefferson? I mean, he's obviously a progressive, but not not really. No, he's a fiscal conservative. He's a constitutional radical. Uh, He's progressive on some subjects, but if progressive means the rights of women, no. If progressive means emancipation of slaves, no. If progressive means treating Native Americans with, with genuine respect for their sovereignty, the answer is no. So he's all over the place. That's why he gets quoted by everybody, because you can sort of make Jefferson seem to be what you want him to be if you selectively quote him. But I think he would be a progressive now. I mean, he, he was an Enlightenment figure. I think that he would have grown with the country and become an Enlightenment figure in our own time. But on specific policies, we just don't know. And there's enough darkness in Jefferson and enough blindness and enough white male privilege for us to wonder if he really can be regarded as a progressive. So I I think that it's hard to characterize this man, which is good. That's what the humanities do. They complicate rather than simplify. Maybe that's a bad question to ask. Maybe that's part of the problem is that we put people in categories. But uh, moving on towards the end of this conversation, something that is on your list and and would be on mine too, and that is uh, how grateful I am for these conversations with you and with President Jefferson. I told you a few weeks ago, you know, we hadn't done very many one-on-one conversations with Jefferson, and I really missed it. I have gained so much by being involved with this show, and I'm really thankful for that. And I know that both of us are very thankful for the community that you've created around this show and the feedback and the conversations and the communications we have with all of our listeners. So I'm very thankful for them and those that support the show in whatever way they wish. It's a great thing. So thanks. I couldn't agree more. Uh, Our friendship, central to all of this, uh, but also uh, I have friendships now around the country and around the world that have come out of the Thomas Jefferson Hour. And some of my closest friends, you know who you are, uh, are um, avid listeners, and they've created a community which sometimes meets in person and sometimes meets online and sometimes is just this. I, You and I are doing what we do, and, and they're listening and responding at the other end of the country. But um, I never in my life thought that I would be able to uh, create a little virtual and sometimes actual community of like-minded people. It really is a sort of republic of letters. I don't take a lot of credit for it. I'm, I'm, I'm working through Thomas Jefferson. You know, if, if this was just the Clay Jenkinson hour, uh, there would only be six listeners. So I'm so grateful that Jefferson has become a vehicle from which to, to encourage idealism, optimism, aspiration, a belief that we're up to it, a belief that if the right people find each other and encourage each other, that we can build a better community in America. That's the deepest sort of satisfaction. And again, I want to say it has little to do with me and a great, great deal to do with that problematic person, the third president of the United States, Thomas Jefferson. And in the moments that we have left, uh, I, I know that you have um, some some big plans for next year, some changes that are going to come to the show. 
Um, but the, the, the core content shall always be there. You'll be there. Uh, Jefferson will be there. One on one conversations with interesting people will be there. Uh, listener response and questions will be there. So it won't probably still be called the Thomas Jefferson Hour. It's more likely now to be listening to America, but it will be similar. But I want us to expand beyond the paradigm of Jefferson, not just because he's uh, increasingly toxic in this environment, but because there's so many things that I want to explore, and I'll be out on the road. One of my one feature of my gratitude list this year is the automobile. Um, I know that it's wrong to drive around alone throughout the American West in a carbon guzzling thing, but I love it. And I'm so glad that this exists in America. And I'm going to be wandering the country over the next few years, listening to America with the help of my friend Dennis McKenna. And you'll be part of, uh, part of it, of course. And so stay tuned for all of that. But we are blessed that we have gotten this platform which reaches several hundred thousand people and I dare say has changed the lives of some. I know it has changed my life and I'm reckoning it has changed yours. So God bless everyone. Um, We wish you the best with you and your friends and your family and your community on this Thanksgiving. And I think, frankly, that we all have a great deal to be thankful for in the Thanksgiving of 2022. We'll see you next week for another important edition of the Thomas Jefferson Hour. The Thomas Jefferson Hour is brought to you each week by Dakota Sky Education. The program is distributed nationally by Prairie Public. President Thomas Jefferson lived from 1743 to 1826, and this program presents his views. President Jefferson is portrayed by the award-winning humanities scholar and author Clay S. Jenkinson. To obtain a copy of this or any show for a $12 donation, please call 701-575-0727. This program is also available online at jeffersonhour.com and on Apple Podcasts. If you'd like to correspond with President Jefferson or submit a question for him to answer on the program, please visit the website at jeffersonhour.com. The Thomas Jefferson Hour is produced at Makoche Recording Studios in Bismarck, North Dakota. Bach Cello Suite No. 3 in C Major by Stephen Swinford. Thank you for listening. Please tune in again next week for another thought-provoking, historically accurate program, Through the Eyes of Thomas Jefferson.